You are listening to Beltway Beef, commentary from NCBA's Washington, D.C. office. We are incredibly lucky this week to be joined by a champion for cattle producers around the country, Congressman Rick Crawford from the great state of Arkansas. Congressman, welcome to the Beltway Beef podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We are uh, really glad to have you on the show. I know we've been working on trying to get this put together for a while now. It's great to have you on. Uh, you know, on the Beltway Beef podcast, we do not beat around the bush. We don't like to dodge the hard questions. So uh, I'm just going to kick this off with, with the, the, I know the thing that's been really pressing with me, I've been wanting to talk to you about this. I spent uh, Thanksgiving in Stuttgart, Arkansas, in your district, um, and I was really troubled uh, by my trip down there. Uh, I'm hoping you can shed a little light on this. Where are the ducks, Congressman? Where are the ducks in Stuttgart? Yeah, you tell me and we'll both know. I tell you what, what <laughs> What the problem I see is, you know, obviously is the uh, it's hit and miss. It's you know, depending on where you're at, what time of year it is, and so on. But as long as ducks have open water, they won't come south. Yeah. As long as they've got good feed and open water, they'll stay where they are. So we need the weather to start to get a little colder, start to freeze up a little bit, and hopefully by the time we get down the latter part of December, first week in January, that duck hunting will improve a little. That, that's what it sounded like. They, we went on a little bit of a ride uh, after we got skunked the first day, and, and, uh, and some of those clubs kind of north of Stuttgart were starting to see some ducks. We saw some, some movement up there, but boy, it was quiet, uh, you know, for, yeah. that, for that early season hunt. Yeah, I haven't heard anything good so far, but we're, uh, we're hoping uh, that we'll see the weather change. In fact, got a little bit of a cold front, I think, coming in this weekend, but I don't know if it's enough to bring some ducks with it or not. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a, a good second half of the season. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the end of the season here on uh, on Capitol Hill. Obviously, we're, we're in the lame duck session. Um, we are uh, waiting for you guys to kind of finish your business and, and, and meet that, uh, that spending deadline that's been looming uh, here for the last couple months. But, you know, with the results of the election hanging over all of that, with that net pickup of of seats for Republicans in the House that I think Democrats really didn't expect. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on what we might see uh, wrapping wrapping up here and 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 how that that swing is impacting relations on the Hill right now. Well, I think uh, let me let me mention something probably most people don't realize is that um, the proportions on the committees reflect the percentages of members in the house in terms of majority to minority. Right. So what we're going to see is more Republican seats on the ag committee. Okay. So that's, that's good for us in my opinion, obviously, because I'm a Republican. Uh, but, but um, what that means is now with, we are a stronger minority in the next Congress when we're only, it's a four seat majority basically. Yeah. We are a stronger minority than probably anyone ever thought possible. This means it's almost going to force a level of bipartisanship. That's good because um, we have really, you know, tried to be uh, bipartisan as much as we could at, at every turn and have been rebuffed in this Congress. And that is largely driven by, uh, you know, the more extreme left wing elements of the party sort of trying to get out in front of leadership on the Democrat side. So what we'll see now is I think the Democrats will kind of come to terms with the fact that uh, this was a sort of um, a little bit of a, a statement election, if you will. And that is, we don't like these uh, radical 
policy points, for example, defund the police. That didn't work. Um, there were a number of members that thought that was a good idea, a number of members that barely survived their reelection, uh, folks that we've worked well with over the years that barely scraped by, and then some that lost as a direct result of espousing defund the police. Whether they, uh, in their home district, disavowed it or not, the, the fact was that that seemed to be sort of the overriding uh, cry uh, by, by a lot of Democrats, some high-profile Democrats that, that thought that was a good idea. So then we have the other issue of socialism. Look at South Florida. You know, the pickup that took place in South Florida, I'm talking obviously politically here, and I don't know if you wanted to get down in that, in that direction, but- No, that's great. Look at, look at South Florida, where you have a large population of uh, uh, Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, uh, Nicaraguan Americans and so on who are there because they escaped socialism. Yeah. And so when we start talking about um, a voting block in terms of the Hispanic voting block, there is no Hispanic voting block. I mean, it, there's, there's, you know, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, uh, you know, Colombians, Venezuelans, uh, all that. To lump that all in is, is detrimental. I mean, I think you have to recognize that that is a very diverse uh, you know, population and really shouldn't be all lumped together because they all have their own distinct political views. Uh, and and you know, I, I thought that was pretty relevant in, in the South Florida election. Yeah, I, 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 think, that's, I, I think that's right. And, and, and it's fascinating to me to see uh, how the Democratic Party has reacted to that on the Hill in the, in the weeks since. You know, Colin Peterson, obviously, uh, outgoing chairman of the, of the House Agriculture Committee, lost his race. He's kind of the last of the original blue dog Democrats uh, in right. the House. But you have this new class. Uh, Abigail Spanberger is a great example. She was very vocal right after the yeah. election that those statements from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party made it very difficult for her to connect with, with voters in her district. Um, and, you know, you have a lot of Democrats, I think, that are in that camp that we work really well with. Uh, I know you do as well. Uh, you know, the Ag Committee is a, is a, you know, kind of a shining example of bipartisanship uh, especially compared to maybe the resource committee or, or some of those other spots on Capitol Hill. Right. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I think you do have a lot of those, those Democrats that uh, are looking for a way to find some common ground and, and, and make some progress on some issues with Republicans that clearly resonated with voters in this election cycle. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned Colin Peterson. I had an, a, a pretty good relationship with Colin Peterson. You know, he and I would get, we play music occasionally and, you know, uh, we're both into music and stuff like that. And so uh, we had occasion over the years, several times to play music together. And, and that was, uh, you know, one of those things that sort of united us and something that we both, we both enjoyed. Yeah. He was, he was good to work with. Um, but uh, a lot of what, what, what problems that he ran into was the fact that his committee was being micromanaged by Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. And so we saw this going back to you know the previous uh, majority when he was the chairman. Even then, right. that farm bill had a very distinct Pelosi flavor to it. And so, as long as she's in leadership position and chooses to micromanage committees, that element will be present. That was difficult for him, who has always been willing to be bipartisan, and who um, you know he he wasn't well liked by the progressive wing of of his party. Um, and you can see that there was a major shift. He wasn't willing to shift with them. And, and even it would have been to his detriment if he had, because obviously his constituents 
felt like the party didn't represent their core values. And, and so as a result, he's not with us in Congress anymore. And, you know, that is very, very telling. He's been there, what, 30 years, roughly. Um, And so that tells you that's a fairly seismic shift away from, and particularly when we're talking about rural America. Um, You know, rural Americans feel like they've been left behind in many cases. And so on the one hand, it's, um, it's a real problem. On the other hand, I view it as a real opportunity. Uh, because I live in rural America. Yeah. So I view it as an opportunity to go out and really proactively communicate these issues and hear what they want, uh, not just to go out into the communities and dictate, here's what's going on in Washington. That's been done too often, and it's, and, and, and they're tired of it. And and then, quite frankly, that's what compelled me to run for Congress in the first place. Right. Well, and, and you know, and we this isn't something we talked about in advance, but this is kind of the natural place to go with this. I mean, that's going to really be on uh, on display, given what we're hearing from some of the new leadership in these committees. I, you know, Congressman Scott, David Scott is, is a has been a great friend of NCBA. He's, he's been great to work with on Capitol Hill. Uh, his his statements right after his uh, selection as the incoming chairman uh, were encouraging to us, I think, and others in agriculture that, uh, you know, he, he he's in tune to the fact that, uh, you know, they need to make sure they're doing work on that committee for rural America, for farmers and ranchers. Uh, and I think GT Thompson, the, the incoming ranking member, uh, views a lot of that the same way. We're encouraged by that, that discussion of bipartisanship, but we're also hearing a lot about that agenda that may be coming forward. Climate is going to be something we are going to be talking about a lot. I personally believe, you know, and I, I think others agree, American agriculture has one of the best stories to tell uh, in, the, in the entire country in that, in that realm. Um, if we can overcome some of the false narratives that are out there, the cattle industry in particular, uh, you know, when you really drill down into it, we do so much more for the environment uh, as far as what we put back in than what we take out of it. Um, mm-hmm. h- how do you think that's going to play out in that committee? I, I know it's, they're going to be talking about it in all the committees, um, but in agriculture in particular, um, is there some room for us to, to maybe change the tone of that debate and, and find some ways to really make sure agriculture is getting credit for what we do? There is a couple of things I want to unpack there because there's a lot of talk. First, let me say something about David Scott. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. He's one of the finest people in Congress. And so his willingness to work across the aisle is is without question. Yeah. My concern, as I mentioned before, is are we going to see a more of a micromanagement as we've seen in the past? Now, I would say that I would suggest that the close majority, the really tight majority, might cause sort of a, a rethinking of that approach. And that's where we're going to have an opportunity to move things forward. And so um, what, I, what I would like to see, because obviously uh, the environment is, is going to be a driving factor in every committee, as we've seen in the previous Congress, right. um, every committee had to stand up a subcommittee that dealt with climate change. And every committee had to have at least one hearing on climate change relative to their jurisdiction, even in the intelligence committee, which I serve on. Right. We, we went through that. We, we have a subcommittee that addresses that. And we've gone through the briefs where we brought members of the intelligence community in to address climate change. And, you know, the, the, the question you asked, look, are, is, our, is our intelligence community really need to be talking about climate change? Okay. The Ag Committee, on the other hand, 
we don't need to necessarily, what we need to be doing is proactively talking about um, what ag producers are doing to address climate change um, at, on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, are there, in, in my opinion, when you're talking about climate change, environmental issues, there are two kinds of people, environmental activists, and then ag producers who are active environmentalists. Right. And so we need to start telling that story. Look, uh, farmers across the country, farmers and ranchers, have been frontline engaged on environmental issues for decades because they know they derive their livelihood from good stewardship of the land. Yeah. We haven't told that story very well. Uh, I don't think, uh, certainly, you know, the industry obviously can improve on that, but I think, you know, Congress needs to improve on telling that story for sure. And so I hope we get the opportunity to address some of the positive things, number one. Number two, I think we need to take a look at what, what is the marketplace asking for and then try to be more responsive in terms of uh, turning out a product that is, it does a couple of things. I mean, number one, it tells the story of how, how great our ag producers are in terms of managing uh, natural resources and, 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 and addressing the environment. And number two, it, it, tells the consumer, we hear you, and we want to deliver something. And finally, maybe one of the most important ones from an ad perspective, I want to commoditize those kinds of things so that they can become a significant part of your revenue. Because look, the fact is, over the last 10 years, we've seen commodity prices across the board in a rut. Yep. And so that's the output. Let's start talking about the input and how we turn that input into more of a revenue stream, or at least reducing our, 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 our costs and turning that into something that you know, manifests in an improvement to our bottom line. So we can do that. I think we solve an awful lot of problems and, and we continually tell the story about our successes in environmental stewardship and we demonstrate to the consumer that we're listening and we're delivering a product that you're asking and in the end, we all benefit. Well, and, you know, going back full circle to where we started our conversation, uh, it, it, it being in your district a few weeks ago, and this is true in any agricultural community in the country, I spent more time talking about conservation with the farmers and ranchers in, in your district over, over the Thanksgiving holiday. That's their natural language. I mean, they're talking about habitat. They're talking about the, the, the work they're doing on their, on their operations to, to you know, increase conservation benefit. Um, this isn't new business for any of these guys. This is, this is what they do and have done for generations, you know, stewarding these lands. And, and you spend 20 minutes with, with a producer and they'll tell you how their, how their dad and grandfather managed that property and what they've done, you know, what this field looked like and this, this, you know, this area of their farm looked like 30 years ago versus today and, and what they've done. That's just, that's just natural for these guys. And, and mm -hmm. it's going to be important for us to, to make sure that, 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 decision makers in Washington that don't come from districts like yours really understand uh, just what a benefit there is there if we can if we can capture it and to your point start compensating producers for the more they do uh, moving forward so it's going to be fascinating to see how that how that shakes out I agree with you so what can we expect we're, we're, we're looking at a short-term one week uh, CR and, and hopefully some kind of a deal coming together are you are you optimistic uh, and I'm going to split that because, you know, it's been split, I think, for the last, for this Congress, at least this last year, you, know, you have COVID relief on one side, and then you have the, the spending bill on the other. 
Uh, let's start with the spending bill first. I mean, are you optimistic we're going to get a deal and we're, we're going to get the government funded? Well, I mean, that's, that's essential, obviously. Um, I would have hoped for a CR beyond December 18th. Sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly why they decided to make it December 18th, uh, unless it was to try and put a little more pressure on both sides to come to the table on COVID relief. Um, but the fact of the matter is we have to fund the government. So um, that's a week away. Yeah. So we're probably going to go back at maybe Tuesday or Wednesday and vote on another CR. Are, we're going to punt that into the next year, obviously. Um, Steny Hoyer has said he's announced the schedule. We're coming back in on January 2nd. So it's entirely possible that we basically get a CR that goes into the first week in January and we're going to be right back here having this conversation the first week of January. Um, that's a possibility. I would rather, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to do a CR and punt this into the next administration, I would rather see it go on beyond January 20th. Give us time to address this and move into the next administration in any case, because I just think that would be a, a, a you know, take a little bit of, of some of the uncertainty. I don't like CRs anyway, but we, we've lived by them over the last 10 years. Um, I would a lot rather, you know, go through the appropriations process as we should and, and, and take a lot of that uncertainty away and really, you know, address the, the business as we should. But I, I'm not optimistic that we're going to see a longer term CR. I'd love to see one that goes beyond January 20th. Uh, I don't think that's likely. I think what we'll probably see is get us through Christmas. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't come back immediately after Christmas. I'm really? not suggesting that will happen, but I am suggesting if it did, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. That's interesting. I, 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 I hope that's not true as well, but, but that's interesting to hear. I, do you think that, and you alluded to this, the COVID relief conversation that's running alongside, and you know, I think rightfully so, appropriators have tried to kept, keep those things separate over the last year, but there are some some important pieces in that in that you know the various versions of COVID relief for ag producers, whether it is you know a funding fix for for the ag quarantine inspection shortfall that we've seen, uh, mm -hmm. you know tax deductibility for those PPP loans that that uh, producers have received uh, that were really a lifeline along with the CFAP program uh, for a lot of producers around the country over the course of the year. Um, you know I, I know a lot of our producers are watching that and really trying to, to get a sense of whether or not there's a real uh, uh, path for that, or is that a post-January 20th priority as well at this point, where we're more likely to see it at the beginning of a Biden administration? I can't, I can't imagine that you would want to push COVID relief off beyond January 20th. That's Agreed. something that should have been done by now. Uh, there have been plenty of offers and opportunities, uh, bipartisan suggestions. We're not gonna, you know, uh, we're not gonna get every single thing we want, I'm not even sure we should get every single thing we want. I mean, heck, I love my wife more than anybody. I don't get every single thing I want. I mean, that's <laughs> life, right? right? And I don't think it's realistic, even in your own house, to think you're going to get every single thing you want. And, and, and you know, beyond that, in, in, the, in the real world, it doesn't work that way. So I think that these are uh, some unrealistic demands. Um, but look, there's been some good faith offers. Number one, there's a whole lot of unspent money yeah. that can be reprogrammed and put into circulation immediately. And then beyond that, do we really need to be talking about two plus trillion dollars 
that are that has nothing to do a, a, a vast majority of it has nothing to do with actual economic relief related to COVID. So I mean I think you know let's be a little bit more realistic about what we're trying to accomplish here and 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 do the right thing for the American people and it has devolved into a political um, disconnect that is going to be very very difficult to overcome but the reality is that shouldn't wait that shouldn't be punted off to January 20th that's over a month yep. uh, that uh, uh, adding insult to injury you know difficult you know maintaining payroll uh, the expenses that you have because you, you don't have any revenue coming in I mean you want to keep businesses in business um, it's not about picking winners and losers it's about you know trying to provide resources and and something as a result of something that nobody had any control over in reality. I mean, uh, we're doing the best we can given the circumstances. Uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, it has changed a lot of people's perspective on how we help people and why. And, and I think, um, you know, we have to be a lot more uh, pragmatic in our approach to how we deliver economic aid at a time when we really need it. Yeah. Well said. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity and a, 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 a lot of interesting work that's going to develop over the next few months. Uh, Congressman Rick Crawford, I can't tell you how much we appreciate the work you do for producers around the country. Uh, you've been a real champion for our industry, and, and I know uh, we're looking forward to working with you on into the future. Um, thank you for joining us today and sharing a little insight at a time when there is, sir, a lot going on here in Washington. You bet. I look forward to coming back. We'll definitely do that. You've been listening to Beltway Beef. Check us out online at policy.ncba.org. Don't forget to eat beef and join us next week.